Holy shit, man. I, I feel like we need to be fucking recording this in like a dank bar, like in a, on a two o'clock on a, well, I guess it's four o'clock on a Thursday, which I don't, I don't pull the curtain back too much, but, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like I should be like halfway through a pack of Lucky Strikes and, and drinking, drinking out of a clear, just not even nondescript bottle of liquor, like a brown liqueur that I'm drinking out of straight. Just and a really bad kind of well. Because I, it it didn't happen with Blue Collar. And maybe it should have. It didn't happen with Blue Collar and, and uh, <clears throat> Hardcore and American Gigolo. But now that we've gotten into the latter stages, and I've like also immersed myself in Brisson and Bergman, and I'm like, fuck, man. This is like one, one, this has been a week of like really heavy, just kind of introspection and just religious thought. And like, so I think our podcast needs to have like a surgeon general's warning for this, for this specifically for this episode, maybe moving forward. Existential despair. <laughs> right. Going into the holidays, I'm not sure Schrader was the best uh, choice to, to, to go with. No. And, and, and I get, I get sad around the holidays anyway. That's a different podcast. <laughs> That's the title it's of it, the, actually. It's the anti-Hallmark <laughs> podcast. Brock gets sad around the holidays. Brock gets sad around the holidays. <laughs> we have all these podcasts that have ridiculously not long names, but and that one's just really on the nose. <laughs> just, right, right. But it's it's weird that you say that about like drinking in the afternoon in a certain kind of. I used to I I used to hang out in those kinds of bars. Sure, that's right. that's where I. That, I mean, that's where I. Well, well, I was a denizen of your and your thoughtful and, yes, and educated and and, and also. Just just, yeah, I, I can just see kind of like a northwestern college town where you've got nothing to do in between classes, so you just belly up to a, you know, <laughs> right. and, and to a right. to a bar that has three dollar wells all day long, and everyone can you can bum a cigarette from, and you just sit there and talk about whatever poetry and oh, film and yeah, but also and just lament like women nothing. that got away, yeah, or the ones that are still there <laughs> specifically those. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I yeah. Overall, I feel like it's for Schrader in this part of his career, which he's clearly doing the last set of films that he's going to be doing. I mean, he won't. I mean, obviously, he won't be around that much longer. And if he will, he won't be active. And I don't wish him any ill will. I don't. But I think he's had some health issues as of late, um, and these are the probably the final films that he's going going to do. They clearly seem to be him still wrestling and exercising, not exorcising, but exercising these demons that he has, that he's had his entire career, as well as, I think, almost propping up his masters to an extent and making films that are way more uh, visually and thematically similar to what he, you know, other people that, that were influences to him. Because these films just have, and we'll get into it, but the films that we're talking about today just have Brisson and Bergman written all over them. All over them. And and I, I think these themes, too, are not just his themes. I think they're very common themes. I think they are very, I mean, this this kind of existential crisis, right? And, and again, I think I've said this before, but it's 2022. And if you're not having an existential crisis, are, are like, what are, are you, you alive, doing right? with your life? Yeah. Are you even alive? But, but this idea of what am I doing? What do I mean? What kind of meaning can I make out of this stuff? And also 
I'm losing faith in all of the institutions that I once had faith in. Right. And to your point about if you're not having existential existential crisis, what are you even doing? These films are an indictment of the people who aren't of of this of this self-assured and I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but these these people who are just seemingly on the surface are non-thinking. They're just surface people that are just about the artifice of everything that they're doing and, and really just paying, paying lip service and, and putting on these, these labels for themselves that allow them to feel better, you know, putting on Christianity, if you will, as, as a coat of protection, but not having any idea of what it actually means to be a Christian. Again, going back to this idea of they are more interested in living out that spectacle, living out that illusion than they are in examining and trying to live any kind of truth or have an original relationship with the world around them. All of these characters, except for sort of our main characters, the protagonists, quote unquote, in these three films, they don't even have a choice. They're just confronted with themselves and themselves in the world. And so they have to deal with it, they have to reckon with it. Some reckon with it better than others, but everyone else around them is just like, you know what? I'm just going to go to work and that's great. I'm just going to be an entrepreneur. I hate that fucking word, by the way. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm not polluting the world. I'm not doing anything. And if I am, I won't be around when it all burns down anyway. But again, that kind of putting on that construct, putting on that, like you said, that coat of Christianity or that coat of whatever so that they can get through the day. Who am I to say that that's wrong? Well, no, fuck that. Well, and and, and I think Schrader clearly is saying that's wrong. I, 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 you know, and, and, and if nothing else, I, I think he struggles with, I think as, as like you said, as we all probably should struggle with this humanity that we all are supposedly supposed to have. Right. (laughs) Um, And that some of us do struggle with just another pulling back of the curtain. Whenever the lights flicker in here, I just feel like it's God, you know, agreeing with us. (laughs) It's his applause. It's just Morse code. He's like, yes, yes, you guys are getting it right. (laughs) (laughs) Big big fans of the podcast guys. Except you're both like godless pagans. (laughs) Right, right. I know you guys don't believe in me, but But, but, I'm going to overlook that for for a couple hours a week. But but, but being omnipotent, it's cool. I don't really need your, I don't really need your belief. It's fine. (laughs) The Omni God. Right. But he's not Omni Benevolent. No. (laughs) All right. So we're wide as the Wilhelm scream. Welcome to our (laughs) <laughs> treatise on, on God and Schrader. Right. Uh, Our existential crisis. Today we're talking the late films of director Paul Schrader. Specifically, we'll be talking about Affliction, First Reformed, and The Card Counter, his most three recent films. He does have a film that's coming out shortly, in most likely in 2023, that has not been released yet, so we won't be talking that one. Maybe we will at some point, but today we're talking about these other films. Uh, anything else before we kind of jump into those? Well, Affliction was 97. So it was, and that was, so he did some things after that, that I don't think we really need to talk about or, or pretend that they exist. I don't think a lot of Nicolas Cage things. Yeah. And two or three films with Nick Cage actually after that. But, but I do think that, that, that Affliction is, although different, is still of a piece with these later films. Yeah. I think, I think thematically they're the same. I think Affliction, 
from the perspective of being a 97 film, I think it fits right into that time frame of feel bad films that were coming out at that particular point in time. This was a heavy Sundance era. There were a lot of films that were being, um, you know, released that had this kind of same thematic and look and feel to them. And picking up of also just kind of cherry picking these actors who had been you know, big in the 70s and 80s and kind of revitalizing their career to a certain extent. It made kind of the Pulp Fiction, uh, you know, thing that would happen with John Travolta. where It was a trope at the time. (laughs) Right. Let's let's find the guy. And I don't think that's what necessarily, from reading about this, uh, Schrader had had let this sit on the shelf for quite a while. He actually made, he'd actually bought the the novel, uh, picked up the rights to it, wrote the script and had it sitting on the shelf for five years until Nolte came around and dropped his fee a little bit so they could get financing for it essentially. And then once that happened, he, you know, they ended up making it and it ended up being pretty much the crown in Nolte's later career for sure. Oh, for sure. I'm, well, we'll get to this, I think, later, but he did make another film called The Good Thief that I actually, yeah, actually en- like a lot, enjoyed. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Affliction was based on the Russell Banks um, novel of the same name. And interesting, I'm sure you saw this too, but The Sweet Hereafter, the Her which is also a Russell Banks mm-hmm. novel, came out that same year. Adam McGoin film, um, which I think is probably a better film, but it there's is. something, I think... I, I There's think, something more powerful about affliction and its kind of rawness that it has. It has the traitor level of visceral, you know, that visceral nature up to it that that um, the sweet hereafter does not. Right. The sweet hereafter is more a contemplation on despair and grief, and it is a very slow moving, kind of unforgiving film. This film is unforgiving in a completely different way. Um, thoughts on Banks? Do you like Russell Banks? I, I have not read a ton of Russell Banks because this book came out in 89, I right, think. Right. I was not reading Russell Banks type books at, at that at that age. And I haven't gone back to to Russell Banks. I, I, I unfairly lump him in with Nicholson Baker. I think because they're kind of, you know, near right, contemporaries sure. or, or direct contemporaries. And and I'm not a huge fan of, of Baker. And so I haven't delved I th- into into that much. The way that I look at Banks, I like Banks's style. Mm-hmm. I, and I haven't read, I've read Affliction. I don't believe I read The Sweet Hereafter, but I did read Rules of the Bone. And I liked that a lot. But I also kind of lump those guys into that, just that kind of style that was happening around that same time frame. And I don't know, I can't pull another name. Well, I, I kind of equate them too with Richard Russo. Yeah, yeah, like, the, yeah know, a nobody's lot like Richard Russo, John Ford. It, 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 those, yeah, so yeah. Those, those types of author, authors that were big right around that time frame. And to be fair, I dug most of those guys. Yeah. And again, and I, 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 I've read more Richard Russo than I have these other guys. I think he has a lighter touch. Mm-hmm. Than uh, than Baker or Banks. <laughs> Nothing more to say. I just, I mean, just to point out no. that, that I, you know, um, that this is a novel. It was an acclaimed novel, um, and it is semi autobiographical novel right. of Banks's right. story. And did Banks? Did he write the script, or did they write? I, I know that Schrader considers this a collaboration with Banks. I mean, I think he gives Banks a lot of a, a lot of credit. I think the only the only credit that Banks gets is that it's a story by okay. or it's a novel by there, if you go and look at IMDb he does not get a screenplay credit so it, those are screenplays gotcha. that were not even when on Sweeter After that that wasn't a he didn't get a screenplay credit on oh, that he, one either. oh no he do, yeah it's just it's just Schrader with the screenplay but I know Schrader considers it I mean he considers you know that it's more of a collaboration than like well this is just my film with this guy's book so 
Affliction is being hailed by critics as a film of startling intensity. Performances by Nick Nolte and Sissy Spacek go for the jugular, says the New York Times. Entertainment Weekly calls it Paul Schrader's best movie yet. And John Powers of Vogue magazine raves, a beautiful, harrowing film, perhaps the best performance of Nolte's career. So what's what's Affliction about, Brock? Okay, do you want <laughs> do you well, want the let's get, let's get the let's get the surface level what it's about and then we can go with the <laughs> what's it actually about, about. Okay, what, so do you want the synopsis or do you want like the page and a half summary that I've written out? You, you, give me the synopsis then. All right. So the film is narrated by uh, Rolf Whitehouse. This is in a small New Hampshire town, washed up cop Wade Whitehouse has a troubled past, an abusive father. He has an ex-wife who hates him, and he's not a very good cop. He's not very good at anything. He's a part-time he's handyman. He's good at drinking. Part-time cop. Yeah, he's he's good at being a loser. When hunting guy Jack Hewitt, played by Prez from The Wire, um, <laughs> reports a businessman's accidental death during a hunting trip, Wade believes he has a chance to turn around his life. He wants to prove that there was more going on here, that this was a murder, that this is part of, part of a conspiracy. So Wade becomes more and more obsessed and basically just begins to lose his composure during his quote-unquote investigation. Tied back into blue-collar union uh, union corruption and, and illegal loans that his brother eggs on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is where, you know, Willem Dafoe plays, plays Rolf, plays Wade's brother, and he opens the film with this voiceover, and he starts talking about, you know, Wade's strange criminal behavior. And and it really, he just, this this businessman comes up from Boston, right, a kind of vacationer, kind of a, you know, tourist, comes up for hunting season, and he goes out with with Jack, and, and you, you can tell right away this guy is just inept with a gun, and it's no surprise that he ends up shooting himself. But it's sketchy enough. And it turns out he was going to testify, right, against the mob, I think, uh, over, like, illegal union loans. and he, Yeah, Wade, Wade's really a traffic cop. I mean, he's technically he's, the sheriff of this small town, but it, but but he's beholden to the mayor, and yeah. and really he is a jack of all trades he's and, not a, and even a master a, of none. Of none. Them. He's he, and, and this guy's not even a mayor; he's a selectman. Correct. Right. So it's like because this town doesn't—it's like a township or something. It, it doesn't really—it's it's not small, really a thing. Yeah, it's a small town in New Hampshire, and so it's really small. And yeah, instead of having. I mean, the executive branch of those towns are, are what they call selectmen. Or they're like, I think there's, I don't know how many there would be in this one place, but it's just this one guy who's, I mean, really just kind of a small time, small business owner, but like somehow the most powerful guy in that. But town. even he has very little to do <laughs> other than just direct, gets, know, make sure the streets are plowed and make right. sure, make sure, yeah. make sure the school traffic gets gets directed and that's basically it it's it uh, and so wade left to his own devices is also just a town drunk i mean it, to a certain extent right i yeah. mean he you know he's he's he definitely goes to the bike like we said like i was saying at the onset <laughs> going to a bar at two at two o'clock and that's where he's going to be holed up for the day after he's done whatever he needed to do that morning can we talk about this first scene? The yeah, first absolutely. scene in the film, one, it sets everything up. And two, it's heartbreaking. So he's late picking up his daughter from his ex-wives. 
it's Halloween. And they're having a conversation in the car. His daughter's name is Jill, and Jill wants to go trick-or-treating. And, and Wade, played by Nick Nolte, right? And she really wanted to go trick-or-treating in her hometown. Right. She does she not, not want to be there. Yeah, she, she does not does, want to be with her father. She does especially not want to be there at all. Halloween. She wants to be with her friends. She wants to be trick-or-treating. And he's like, well, it's too late. We can't do it. And he's like, we had to do all these other things. And... And at a certain point, he's like, you know, it's not my fault. And this line from this kid is so good. She goes, well, whose fault is it? And, and she's being, and he's like, what do you mean? And she goes, well, if you're in charge, then who's to blame? And of course he has no answer, but you're just, I mean, I'm heartbroken at that point. I am just like, this is, this is tough. And so they go to like the local school, there's a party going on and she, again, does not want to be there. And he's, but he's trying, right? He's not malicious. He's not evil. He's just a screw up. He's just a fuck up. I mean, everything he does is like the wrong thing. But that scene also, she also talks to him about the mischief that that one would get into. He talks. Mm-hmm. He's talking about mm-hmm. the kids who are out late during Halloween that are still trick or treating and that they shouldn't be and they're up to no good. And she asks him, "You know, were you like that? Did you ever do anything like that?" And his response is an insight into himself, where he talks about, "Yeah, I might have done some of that thing, but now I'm a better. I'm better than right. that. I'm a better person than that. This is who I am now, and I'm trying to teach you how to." And we clearly understand because immediately after the scene is over with, he's not better. He's he's not the person he believes he is. And that sets off the actions of everything in this movie. Yeah. His daughter doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to doesn't want to play with these other kids. And he's like, oh, go run and play. And he goes outside for a smoke right in a drink on, 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 the, on like the porch of the school. Later, he goes for a ride to smoke a joint and <laughs> just leaves her in there. He gets an argu- he get, they get into an argument with one another. He basically doesn't know how to parent and gets completely frustrated with her. She doesn't want to partake in the kind of childish Halloween. Her, her costume is messed up. She's wearing a coat over her costume. She doesn't want to partake in this, in this Halloween parade that, that are you know, carnival that, that she knows no kids at, at whatsoever. And so she sits and sulks as a, as a kid would do upstairs right. and Wade's like, fuck it. I, I can't handle you. I'm going to go outside and, 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 and in the first 30 minutes that he's had his kid, <laughs> they're already, they're already fighting and already, and he's already given up and was throwing his hands up. But he's look, he is a, in a kind of state of arrested development. Anyway, he's a child himself, really. He does not know how to do this. And, and, and he never has, and he never will. I mean, he does not really know how to be his own well, adult he's, man. He's built this story of himself, right? He's done the things that he's survived the trials and tribulations of his youth. He's become somewhat of a person of no, of, of not renowned, but he's known within the town. He has some level of authority to do things, even though no one respects it whatsoever. When Jack shoot, when Jack is involved with the with the shooting during the hunting trip. Jack specifically asked him, what are you doing? You're trying to police now? There's no respect for him whatsoever. He's seen as this kind of bumbly buffoon. He's he's disrespected while he's directing school traffic. You know, he wears oafish clothing. He wears clothing that's, that are most likely his dad's clothing that are that are that are that are too big for him. He's kind of hidden in this shell 
of a humanity that, that is built around himself, but he also thinks himself to be everything that happens to him is, is happening to him, not because of him. You know, his wife left him, his, his kid doesn't like him, but he's a good husband. He's a good man. He's a good father. These are all things in his head that he truly, truly believes. And, but he also understands that he's not conveying that. And so when this opportunity comes to solve a crime and to make himself the hero of his own story, he jumps into it with abandon and ultimately ends up, you know, obviously we'll get to the point where it ends up. <laughs> right, right. Going back to what you said about him sort of being, you know, clothed in, in these somebody else's outfit, right? somebody else's attire, because he's always, and again, this will come up as we go, but, but he's always living in the shadow kind of quite literally of his father because James Coburn is a big man and he is a big brutish guy. Wade is also a big brutish guy, but he's never going to be that big. It, metaphorically, right? he's never going to be as big a quote unquote man as his father. And so he's always living in this shell as this kind of meek and feeble boy that he once was. He wants to be bigger. He thinks he can stand up to him, but he can't. Yeah, and he thinks that he's different than him. He thinks that his drinking is different. It's not as, as abusive. He thinks that he's the protector. And one of the more heartbreaking scenes as we go along in this movie, he, when he realizes that what he thought of himself is completely wrong. There's a scene as we go along where Wade's brother... Get, comes back to town. Let's we're jumping ahead. Let's get let's let's, let's start. So during di after the Halloween party, um, we meet Sissy Spacek, and Sissy Spacek is a, is a waitress in a diner who fancies Wade, and they have a relationship with one another. They're not married, the boyfriend girlfriend, but she kind of keeps him grounded and kind of provides a light in his life. His dad is still part of the town. His dad is still part of his life. He goes and visits his father, and it turns out that his mother has passed away. Now, why she passed away is up for some debate in the storyline, but more likely than not is that Wade's father got drunk, forgot to bring her a heater, and eventually she just passed away from, from either being hypothermia. Too, hypothermia, being too cold, being sick. She hadn't been feeling well, and Wade's father was a drunk. And when they get to the house, Wade's father doesn't even realize that she's dead. Or if he does, he's trying to hide it and he's trying to ignore it himself where he's, he can't come to the, uh, he can't, he can't come face to face with the shame of having his wife pass, pass away, you know, have being, have passed away, especially on his watch. So it's one of those things where it's not his fault. It's, you know, it was the cold and she couldn't handle it. And, and that's basically the end of it, you know? And, and so Wade is left with, with this horrific confrontation of his mom being dead on this bed and then having to deal with his father and everything that's falling. And basically now to become, uh, I don't know, an anchor or buoy for this family as they go through this this tragedy of their mother's death. Yeah, he has to become really the caretaker now. I mean, because, so he eventually moves in to his father's house. He and Margie, Sissy Space, kind of, they talk about getting married and they're gonna move into that house. They're gonna sort of take over the farm or that, or, you know, everything there. They set up, and arrange the wake and the funeral. And it, at the wake, Wade's father's drunk. They get in a fight. And this is where Rolf comes in and, and, and comes back to town. He has gotten out of the, of the family situation. He's a professor at BU, Boston University. And he comes back, and you can tell he's 
doesn't want to be there. He's really detached and kind of distant. They have a sister who is, as I think Rolf describes her, a Jesus freak. At the wake, she turns to him and says, Rolf, are you saved? And he just goes, no, I'm not. <laughs> that's the end of it. Which is she's like, you're going to go to hell then. She's like, well, I'll be there with, I'll be there with Wade and dad and mom. But yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Um, but Rolf is in part responsible for kind of revving Wade up. So again, after that, after the accidental shooting, Wade's out there and he's asking Jack questions and he's sort of, again, like you said, Jack says, oh, are you going to start policing? Now what are you doing? But he's got something in his head kind of already. And then Rolf- and there's suspicious things that are going on. Jack sure. has the hunter's gun. Jack has blood on his, on his, on his jacket, jacket. When he, when he is also saying, well, I never went near that. You know, he, that the guy essentially blew his brains out because he tripped and fell and a 30 odd shotgun, you know, put a hole in him. Right. Um, and, but Jack said, you know, he wasn't near him that, and so that he saw him from afar. And so it, it appears to be suspicious, but also it could be just as a matter of also someone being in shock from seeing someone who, who killed themselves. Or accidentally. just being sort of sketchy because he's trying to steal the new gun. Right. I mean, which is, which is part of it, too. Right? <laughs> right. He wants that gun. And when Wayne gives it to, you know, the hunting and fishing officials, you can see that, that, that Jack is disappointed and upset. I mean, he wanted that. So, I mean, it could be as simple as that. Yeah, I didn't go near him, but I have his gun somehow. So, I mean, and which we can assume that's how he got blood on his on his jacket. I mean, all of this stuff is explainable. None of it is. Sure, there's questions and it's kind of sketchy and he's acting weird, but he's a shifty guy anyway, Jack. But it's all explainable. But again, like Wade needs it to be something bigger. For yeah, it's his one chance. Him. It's his yeah, one chance to show that he's better than what people think he is. Yeah. And, and he is who he thinks he is. And I think I think Rolf feeds into I think Ralph understands that. I think Ralph one doesn't he's been removed so long that he doesn't really understand the danger in what he's saying to Wade and right. saying that, you know what, I think you were spot on the first time you, you know, your first inclination was spot on and that, you know, he probably was involved in some under, you know, underhanded things. And, and it's very possible that that, you know, Jack killed him on purpose and you should keep looking into it not really knowing who Wade was or who Wade is or what he's dealing with. He's been so far removed. They still talk on the phone. They still talk occasionally. But again, he's getting a presentation from Wade of of who Wade is, not the reality of Wade. Had he still been in town, he would have seen Wade is exactly how everyone else saw Wade, which was just a fool. Wade will call him late at night and just start talking and saying, telling kind of, just telling stories, really. I mean, it's it's it, it's more of a one-sided conversation when he calls. It's like he just needs someone to listen to him talk about whatever it is that's kind of weighing him down. And I think Rolf is trying to entertain these ideas when he when he yeah, pushes I, that theory. I think he's he thinks he's doing something right. He thinks he's helping, right? Wade just kind of go through this process and go through these thoughts. Well, I think it's Rolf's guilt, right, of leaving and leaving Wade, where. He understands that Wade saw himself as a buffer between his father and and the little brother, even though in reality he wasn't the the Wade saw himself as being able to. He probably sees great success in Rolf leaving and the fact that he was able to enable and keep 
you know, the beatings and, and the beratement and everything else off of Rolf's shoulders because he took it all. He took all the, the brunt of it all. Yeah, and, or at least and, he thinks he does anyway. Right. Because Rolf says as much like, I don't remember that. I don't think things happened that way. And, and right. Yeah. It was, in fact, it was, like, it, was, no, it, was, sure. it was it was another kid you were talking about that was that was there that day. It wasn't me. Right. It was. I wasn't there. It was someone else. And he's like, no, no, you were there. I'm sure of it. He. But again, I mean, this is another place where Wade really kind of wants a validation, a kind of recognition, a, a, a story he tells himself about himself, of who he was and who he is because of that. Right. Absolutely. And after that, Wade just keeps digging and digging and digging and again, trying to make himself. And I think at one point, no, this is later that he says like, everyone will see how much they need me after this. Mm -hmm. Everyone will see, right? I, I, you're all going to need me more and, and I'll, you're going to see how important I am. But he keeps digging into this and he starts harassing Jack more and more, asking more and more questions. Runs um, him off the road. Runs him off the road. You know, yeah, tails him around and, and Jack gets out of the car and shoots. <laughs> shoots his tires. <laughs> shoots out his tires, shoots his windshield. And then Wade gets fired. Um, well, and, and, and prior to that, the the the, the what the true... You know, conspiracy that's happening in the town is that the town is about to come into the town's about to disappear, right. but come into a lot of money. There, there's been a land development. They're setting up a ski lodge outside of the town. They're going to buy up this township and essentially turn it into a way, you know, a, basically an in-between spot between, you know, a town that someone wants to be in and, and a ski lodge. They're buying up area land houses for high, high you know, amounts of money. And. But nobody that, really knows that. Right. And to that, and so it, then that looks suspicious as well. But to that end, the selectman basically throws Jack a bone, knowing that his father has just died and that he is the kind of the town boobs. Like, hey, you know what? Have my truck. Here's, you know, go out and do, you know, we understand. Yeah, I know you're down on your luck. And there's no reason we can't spread the wealth here. Just, but just stop doing stupid shit. Stop right. doing dumb things like right. like antagonizing the citizenry, <laughs> and you know just go and do your job. You and we'll take care of you. We'll look out for you. We know who you are, and he can't. He can't get past this this conspiracy thing. Before we jump too far ahead, yeah. I, one of the things that I that I also stick, stuck out to me was how Jack has essentially ignored all of the women in his life. At the at his mom's funeral, and of course, obviously, this is generational. But at his mom's funeral, his wife, his ex-wife, comes back and essentially, you know, gives her condolences and says something very telling, which Wade does not pick up on or even acknowledge. But she says that her his mom has lived her entire life with the sound turned off, you know, essentially saying that she's that she's taken these slings and arrows and and said nothing and and taken the abuse from from her husband most likely from her sons and have, has lived out this this life that is you know is barren and as cold as the environment in which she lives and you can see in Mary Beth Hurt who's Schrader's actual wife <laughs> uh, that you know she's dodged she's dodged a huge bullet by leaving Wade and leaving this town and, and getting out and and Really, all she's trying to do at this point is is trying to protect her daughter while giving her while giving her daughter some semblance of the man who who you know who her father actually is. But it, but again, Wade does not pick up on any of that. He's and when he sits in bed with Sissy Spacek, his his girlfriend, at, at in the middle of the movie, and she's trying to console him and also tell him 
to be realistic and to not do to to calm down and to not do the things that he's going to do. He doesn't listen to her. He doesn't even he's not even paying attention to the words that she's saying. All he is is he's completely tied up in the conspiracy theory that he's built up in his own head. And then by the time that all of this happens and Sissy Spacek is now taking care of James Coburn, she has this realization because you can you can see it in a couple of ways. Coburn basically tells her that, you know, that she's uppity and that she needs to learn her place. And you see Sissy Spacek start to break down in tears, not because she's been bullied, but because she realizes she is if she stays here, if she marries Wade, even if Coburn passes, this is all that is there for her. And she doesn't I mean, she wants to save Wade, but she can't. And it, it, just, it was just a, that whole scene. I think we sleep on Spacek a lot because I think she's so good in this. But like uh, that, that that, you know, that scene where she just she's just like, I'm I'm going to be I'm going to find myself dead upstairs in a cold bedroom if I continue on with yeah. this man. She says something earlier too. Spacek understood what the mother went through as well. She very clearly I, I forget if she said something along the lines of I'm not going to roll over like your mother did all the time or your mother spent her entire life rolling over. I forget what it was, but she knew. I mean, she, you know, she had watched these people from the time she was a kid. So she knew kind of how they were and, and how they how they acted. And, and, and Nolte's character is just different enough from Coburn, from his father, because he's not so physically abusive that she can kind of deceive herself into thinking, okay, maybe I can save this guy. And then, yeah, she realizes that she can't and, and she has this breakdown and then, and then that's it. Um, we failed to mention that, that Wade, that Nolte is suing for full custody of Jill, which we watch the film. And you're like, this is ridiculous. Like we all understand this is just ridiculous and stupid. Well, it's specifically <clears throat> only for his own benefit. It's not for Jill's because Jill doesn't want to be around him. No. And, he doesn't enjoy the time when he's with her. The two times we see him with her, she essentially, as she's driving to his home, wants to immediately go back home. Yeah. And he can't, he cannot engage with her in any sort of meaningful way at all. It, it was probably easier. And you can see that it was easier when she was young and she was a little bit more gullible. But now that she has a little bit of agency on her own, one, you could read it as her mother, um, you know, talking badly about Wade or, but, but then even to that point, you know, Wade thinks that, thinks that, that the reason that she doesn't like him is because the mom's talking bad about him. And she's like, she doesn't talk about you at all. all. <laughs> she never talks about you. And what, and again, not realizing what a gut punch that actually should be to him is that one, his daughter is coming to the conclusion that he's a piece of shit all on his, all on her own. And the fact that these people that were supposedly supposed to be a part of his life that, I mean, only ever really either ignore him or pity him. It's, it is a depressing as fuck. It is, it is so, it is so bad. And then, you know, they go into the, to the bar slash restaurant for lunch and he's trying, he's trying to be lovable. He's trying to be cute. And it, it, it all feels like an act. It all feels like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Right. And he says something about getting a, uh, a cheese grilled sandwich and the bartender goes, it's grilled cheese. You dumb fuck. <laughs> I mean, one, why is the bartender saying that in front of this well, guy's daughter? But then also he just loses it and grabs the guy and pulls him over the bar in front of his daughter. And 
Yeah. I think the back and forth was um, related to the neon sign previously with the oh, neon sign well, had the, <laughs> with words incorrect. So like Wade's still trying to be jokey and and obviously the, the bartender still is reeling a little bit from it all. Right. And then Wade just can't handle the the you know the barb coming back at him at all whatsoever the yeah. disrespect in front of his kid in front of his kid and then of course he yeah he pulls he has got a kid in his kid's lap choking him essentially and then immediately again like hugging her telling her nothing happened nothing happened it's okay nothing happened and it's just like in in the film you're just like okay <laughs> Well, I don't know. Where are we going from here? It, and it all just snowballs. I mean, it, it completely snowballs because at that point he goes back, back home. And, and, and what does he see? But Sissy SpaceX packing up her car and we know what's happening. And so does he. And he says, are you, oh, are you leaving me, Margie? And she's like, oh, no, I'm just, I'm just taking some stuff. Just going laundry and I got to like drop some stuff off at a yard sale. And he's like, don't lie to me. And in, in, in fairness, right, at least he can see that. It's the one thing I think he can see and understand. He tries to convince her to stay. And this was th- this moment. I have some sympathy for Wade. He's trying to get her. To, he's not. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't think that he has any intention of physically harming Sissy Spacek. I think that he wants to have a conversation. But again, he doesn't know how to communicate. And so he, you know, he's trying to get her to talk to trying to get her to stay. And she's crying. And then Jill gets in between the two and basically starts like swinging at at her father. Now she's what, 11? Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. And and he sort of falls down and 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 she kind of jumps on him and he pushes her and ends up with a bloody nose and and then you know she and sissy spacek drive off and it's gone but i I mean this guy just does not know what to do and it doesn't really matter because it's always going to be the wrong thing every time he does something it's just the wrong thing and like this whole this whole time i'm like yes you're you're a bad father but i don't think you mean to be a bad father you just have no idea Right. Which is clueless and just, again, like just inept and just a fuck up. And you're trying, but you're just not very good at anything. Not even trying. <laughs> not even the effort to be better. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. He, he has no idea how to, to extricate himself from, from the situation that he's in. And, the on, and again, the only thing that he has to prove he has any worth whatsoever is this falsehood of some sort of conspiracy that's going on inside the town. Yeah. And, that, and that's consuming him. It's, it's all consuming at this point. I start to, to think that even he doesn't believe it at a certain point. I think at a certain point, it's like it doesn't matter if this is really happening or not. But, but I'm going to prove it is because that's what I need. And that's what's going to make me into the person I think I am or a person I want to be. Um, well, and it all comes to a head at that point because his father comes out of the house and essentially tells him that he's proud of him. And that's how I would have dealt with this. And, and that you finally you're becoming a man. And like and then he starts talking about how his father was a man and wouldn't have wouldn't have put up with any of this. And essentially Wade they you know they get into an argument over Wade's father's truck and Wade's father Jay Combert does not want him to take the truck he brains him over the head with a with a liquor bottle that that cuz he wanted to go out and buy more booze and Wade comes to grabs the shotgun that he was supposed to take to the wildlife group and hits his father over the over the head with it his father falls back on the snow and then dies yeah and in that scene you 
you know, there's no, there's real no, there's no real horror on Wade's face. This is to me, Wade finally realizes everything about himself at this point is that his father's dead. Long live the new father. That's who he is. That was his destiny from, from day one. He couldn't have possibly escaped it. He didn't protect anybody from it. He couldn't protect his mom from it. He didn't protect his ex-wife from it, not his daughter or his girlfriend and not even now his brother. There's a, there's a, uh, you know, Nolte's so good in that scene and the way that Schrader frames it, there's no anguish in his face. It is just this calm, serene look in his face that you saw earlier when he loses himself when he's directing traffic for the for the for the kids and he kind of just like doesn't really know where he is. He just kind of is in his own head. And in this case, he's laying over his father's body and he realizes that you know, this is this is this is all that I have ever been, and this is all that I'll ever be. And he sets the barn on fire and goes inside and has a drink. It's such a gorgeous shot, too. That that, that right as you're Nolte, watching it through the kitchen window, Nolte sitting at the kitchen table. We're the, looking out the window, and the barn is just catching more and more on fire. It's so great. Um, Coburn says to him, like, "You're of my fucking blood." Or, I mean, he says, "You're of my own heart," and and. And I think that's the moment where it's just like, oh man, yeah. Nolte finally realized, yeah, that's that's what I am. There's this through line in Trader and Brisson and even Bergman's films of this idea of of generations born into alcoholism and born into this pickled state that we and that we almost ignore it to an extent because we understand that it's inevitable. And that's, this film just reeks of, and not reeks, it's a bad term, but you understand it like has this in spades of Nolte. This was generational. This is why, and again, not excusing, it's all horrific behavior, but this is why Coburn was who he was, an unloving bastard. And it lessened to an extent with Nolte, but ultimately he couldn't escape it. Yeah. Well, and and, and, and again, I was going to say with, with the Bergman, with the Bresson at, at all, there is that sense of fatalism. There is that sense, no matter what you do, you can can't outrun this. You can't get away from this. Mouchette was always going to end up the way she ended up. That's how it was going to be. Even if you look at a film like Largent, I mean, it, it, all of these things, you can't outrun this, right? This is, this is already here for you. You can try, but it's still going to happen. Um, yeah, and the only the only reprieve that any of these films, especially kind of diving into these films in a, in a very short period of time and really not really having any sort of like palate cleanser, is that the only thing that you see that is a redemptive arc is the women that still love these men after the fact. In Gigolo, in Pickpocket, there are still, in, and we'll get to the card counter in the same way, there are these, occasionally there are these women that will still be present in these men's first reform, same way. Yeah. Where at the end, there's a notion of life and love that at least gives you some sort of upward swing at the end of these films. But none of these people, like we've talked about before, that, that are, go through Schrader's, that are Schrader's main protagonist, ever end up better off than what they were. They never really learn anything other than that they're destined to, to doom, to be doomed and to fail and, yeah. and to be stuck. And, and that this desire, these you will constantly be 
pushing that boulder up the hill, but you're never going to get to the top. It's you're going to be stuck in this. Well, and that's and that's thing with Sisyphus, too, is it's just you do it over and over again. You might get close to the top or to the top, but you're still going to have to start over. There's still another hill. There's still another mountain to push that boulder up. So we end. So how do you feel about the ending of affliction? So I want to read a Schrader quote about the ending. So he says, One of the differences between things that I have written in Russell's book is that I tend to end my pieces on a kind of grace note, and this one has none. I like some sense of moral grace, but affliction is pretty bleak at the end. I I didn't really care for the voiceover. I didn't really care for the character of Rolf. I don't think he added a whole lot other than sort of like instigating kind of breaking that veil, right? Yeah, yeah, he's a he's a plot device and he breaks the veil. He 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 gives us a more realistic view of Wade right. than what we would have had if Wade was the narrator right. of this story, right? right. I mean, I, I I think if the film cuts to black at the kitchen table, it's fucking brilliant. I mean, it's I think, brilliant. I mean, I, I don't, I don't need the film. sort of like wrap up. I don't need the, well, he shot Jack and then they found his truck close to Canada and he disappeared and no one talks about him anymore. I wouldn't even mind the voiceover, but I I found the, the <laughs> shooting of Jack to be bizarrely placed that and again I can I can kind of understand and again with one just kind of stepping back the character of Ralph makes much more sense in a novel yes it, it, 100% sure. I, I totally sure. understand why you add him there I totally understand why you probably add the potentially the shooting of Jack because you need some sort of resolution to that story well, and, 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 and in, a, in a denouement but in this case, it really serves nothing to have Jack dead and to have Nolte have one more futile act other than to wrap up a loose end for his own sanity. So you can kind of see it. I kind of see it as as Nolte, in this case, Wade shooting Jack to put a pin in this conspiracy theory. He can say that he accomplished something to himself and then leave this town and leave all of the things that were trapping him and that he was trapping himself behind. And, you know, Rolf basically says, if you find someone who's a vagrant somewhere, blah, 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 blah. But I agree with you totally that had this have ended on the beautiful scene of Wade, of us realizing that Wade is going to be the next James Cabern, James Coburn, and dying alone in in a, in a home in his father's home yeah. while watching his while having nothing, while watching his father's barn burn, that is a much more depressing but much more powerful ending to this film. Yeah, and and you can take what you want from that visual metaphor of everything being burnt down. But I mean, I look, overall, I. I I like this film. Yeah, I think. I, I mean, overall, I think Coburn's think really Oscar is well deserved. I, I think. I think that it's funny because you read the stories about this and that Schrader came to Coburn was basically like, "You need to prepare because Nolte's going to take you to task if you don't." And he's like, "Oh, you want me to act? I can do that." It's like he okay, says, that. I yeah, can do yeah. that." It's like yeah. no one's asked me to do it in a really long time, but, but yeah, I can. But do I can that. do that. Yeah, and he's. I mean, he's. I mean, he's just really good. The way that they shoot him and and kind of uh, an imposing frame over. Usually oh. when he's with Nolte in scene, it's you know, and he never comes across as even when he's defending or like torn up about his wife's passing which you kind of believe is more of an act than anything mm-hmm. else he, he's never seen as anything less than imposing or le- and less than assholeish and and like, he carries that character with him through the through all through the entirety of the film yeah. until he passes away he's he's a character who cares about two things and that's himself and his booze and you dare not treat either with disrespect <laughs> 
I don't think I had any final notes on that one. Um, that was it. I do want to talk about the women in these three films. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and we don't do it right now. We can do it kind of as we, sure. I think, as we go. But I think that they're all good performances. I just don't think there's anything in the script for them to do. Let's, I, let's put a pin in it and come yeah, back to it. That's why I was, yeah. 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 I, I agree. <laughs> I, I agree with you, but let's put a pin in it. Do we want to do, let's do First Reformed. Let's do First Reformed. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. Do you want the big summary? Yeah, let's do the big summary. Okay, all right. All right, so Ernst Toller, Ethan Hawke, he's a former military chaplain. He's the pastor at the First Reformed Church in upstate New York. He's having not just a crisis of faith, but an existential crisis as well. Toller is struggling with alcoholism, physical illness, um, later diagnosed as stomach cancer, and the death of his son in the Iraq War. The film opens with Toller writing in his journal, citing it as an experiment to write every day, honestly. So this becomes a, a, a big kind of framing device, a big sort of plot device quote-unquote plot device because there's just there's no real plots i mean as we've talked about in traders film which is right. why i i enjoy most of them so the church is having its 250th anniversary as part of the dutch reformed church calvinist church it was once part of the underground railroad so it's this big kind of historical historical monument that is now largely a tourist attraction it's owned by abundant life this mega church abundant life and the people there jokingly call it the souvenir shop. So one day after service, Toller is approached by Mary, played by Amanda Seyfried, and she asks him to speak to her husband, who's despondent, depressed. He's back home after being arrested in Canada, partaking in environmental protests. Mary's pregnant. Her husband, Michael, can't fathom bringing a child into the world, again, citing climate change, destruction of the earth, uh, and the kind of evils of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mary finds a suicide vest and asked Toller to hide it from the police. Um, this is Chekhov's suicide vest. <laughs> Toller and Michael are set to meet and continue the counseling that Toller's providing. But when Toller arrives at the park meeting place, he finds that Michael has shot himself and committed suicide. Toller himself becomes more and more horrified living in this world that's being destroyed by man. Will God forgive us? He asks to one of the main church benefactors, this guy, um, Ed Balk, right? This kind of businessman polluter right, of, the, right. of the world. He also puts that on this kind of church marquee, right? Will God forgive us? This becomes a question that sticks in Toller's head. Balk and Toller kind of have a confrontation over, over Toller fulfilling Michael's final wishes of having his ashes scattered at a cleanup site, right? A, like a hazard spill cleanup site. The more Toller researches into Balk using like Michael's kind of already started research in his laptop, the more he, well, he starts to build his own suicide vest, right? He digs into this and gets lost in this world. One night, Mary visits Toller and asks him to play Michael's part in this kind of non-sexual act of physical intimacy. Things get kind of trippy here in terms of what Toller sees or sort of experiences in terms of, of, of like environmental damage and destruction. And, and he sort of enters into a more like spiritual plane of the film. And I think I, 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 Tarkovsky has has done certain things like this in films where it's this weird sort of like spatial. I don't know what would you call it. I'm with you. I, I, okay. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I don't. Yeah. I don't know how to like. We'll just say Tarkovsky. It. So Toller asked Mary not to come to the big 250th like reconsecration of the church, and Mary's like, "Well, you were there for me, and I want to be there for you." And he gets all upset. The day of the ceremony, Toller puts on his suicide vest. He sees Mary going to the church. 
takes off the vest and then wraps himself in barbed wire as a kind of like self-flagellation. And it looks like he may have done this before. Right. There, there's some I, scars I, there. And he does find, you do see him find the barbed wire in the, in the historical. In, in the cemetery, right? right? And so he takes it inside. But yes, you do get the idea that this flagellation hasn't just been a thing that, that he newly has just done. did. Yeah. He pours himself a glass of drain cleaner and is going to drink it. And Mary comes in and sees him. He drops the glass and then they embrace and kiss in a very passionate moment. And then the film cuts to black. Yeah. And that's, that's it. That's first performance. <laughs> that's, did, so the film is shot in this four to three aspect ratio, ratio. Enhances those vertical lines. You see more of the body right, in in the frame, which again like goes back to Bresson. I mean, spoiler, this is Diary of a Country Priest. This is 100% okay, this Diary of a Country Diary, Priest. This is Diary of a Country Priest, just like American Gigolo was pickpocket. To a T. I mean, to, I mean, all the beats are the same. Yes, Diary of a Country Priest wasn't like the world is burning and what are we doing? But all the beats are there. And it's part winter light as well. So uh, Igmar Bergman's uh, winter light. But yes, this is it. And it's what is odd to me is that I know that I know that it was mentioned, but I hear Diary Country Priest mentioned a lot when they talk about almost even affliction. But like there was not a whole lot of comparison. When I read reviews of First Reformed, I I was shocked. I know. Like shocked. People were going like, like, oh, this is like like, almost like applauding. Like, oh, this is this is Schrader's. Go watch Diary Country Priest. But this is Schrader's version of this film. Like, how is that not mentioned? Every single breath when you talk about this film, you talk it because, again, it is is that film. The Diary of Country Priest, he's got stomach problems. He can't eat. He ends up dying of stomach. Spoiler alert, he ends up, for a film that's 60 years, 70 years <laughs> no old. spoiler. He, right? ends up, he ends up dying of stomach, stomach cancer at the end of the movie. I mean, he's, like, he's beholden to account. I mean, again, right. all of the, his, all of the he's, ideas he's, about wealth and, and, and community are, are right there. Right. He, he resides over a, a, a very small, you know, parish uh, that doesn't care. That doesn't, that gives no shits whatsoever about, about this person. He can't even get electric light. The electric light is like for the kids parties and stuff, right? <laughs> the like cabaret down the street. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So to me, that was really shocking in the sense that really kind of like, and I wonder if it was to Schrader as well. Like, like I'm clearly making you a cake here. Why aren't you realizing this is an actual cake thing? Right. This is Schrader's dessert. No, no, no. It's a fucking cake that I made. It's Diary of a Country Priest. A- a- acknowledge that I am basically giving you and, and modernizing a film by one of my heroes, by one of the people that influenced me, that 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 taught me indirectly in how to make film. Here is a 2017 version of that for modern audiences that people are really loving. Go back. But again, again not, not to dismiss or anything that he's done with First Reformed, but yes, the Academy ratio, like all of it just, just begs to saying... I, this is this is my version of that. I'm not technically remaking it, but this is this is my homage to to one of the greats and and one of the great great films of cinema history. And it was originally originally supposed to be shot in black and white with no camera movement. So it's supposed to be like static camera in black and white. And you can see he put together a kind of photography reference, and it's all Bergman, Brisson. Antonioni. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see these like images that he has for reference, and it's like I'm glad he didn't shoot it in black and white with static cameras. I, I'm, I'm really Same. glad, but I don't think Schrader composes the way Antonioni did. I mean, as far as as framing 
But I think this is really good. And I, th- I think especially, you know, he has talked about how Brasson doesn't do close-ups. And it's similar in human. We see people, right? It's waist up. It's in singles. It's, it's, it's really in, you know, like doubles or close-ups. And, and again, like the, the way that he cited Brasson's cutting, he's doing the same thing in this film. I mean, it's, it's, we sit there and watch this door for how long until the, the sheriff at one point comes out of Mary's house after having informed her that her husband, we don't see any of that. And again, it's just, it's like the writing in the diary, diary of a country priest, but also pickpocket and pickpocket. You see Michelle write in the diary, give us the voiceover. So we're reading the diary, hearing him talk. And then we see what he does <laughs> we see the action that he's just written this kind of reinforcement of those but then yes paying homage and taking directly from these guys that he he had took so much influence from these types of films that where you have people struggling with humanity and, and specifically in this case you know religious belief and faith are extremely interesting to me i i, I this this idea especially when you juxtapose it with these mega churches. I think you can make the argument that the societal injustices that are that are outlined in this movie are a little bit on the nose. They're maybe I, I don't think that they're inaccurate necessarily, but I but maybe too in your face to an extent. I, I don't know. We can we can debate. We sure. Can debate. I, I think you know. I think the 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 to me the intriguing aspect of this is his, you know, this is a young, this is a, this is a person who's been a minister in the military and he, and he, he feels responsible for his fun, his son's death. He encouraged his son to go over and fight when he was also in the military, you know, he was also working in the military and his son died and it, and it derailed his marriage. When he comes back home, his wife leaves him. They give him these, you know, the souvenir shack to go and, and to 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 reside over because there's five people that show up, and the most likely those people don't show up on a, on a week to week basis. So he's there giving a sermon that no one is listening to, and that has no import to to anyone in the community other than than just to have him to have something to do. And really, they're just they feel they feel guilty. They feel bad for this person. So they, he's he's been giving a despot somewhere else to 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 kind of you know live out his days. Abundant Life Church is they are almost doing all of this out of you know out of just guilt themselves. And it's just one of those things where they're keeping up this historical thing out of you know like I said out of some sort of what of necessity and sort of sort of sense of obligation. But they they pay no attention to it. They degrade it at every turn. The only time that they ever really engage in it is when it is an inconvenience to them. So they, you know, they bring and they have the, they have the, it, when, when Toller goes to them and asks for things, yes, they'll give him a little bit of pittance to, to fix a sink here or there, fix some sort of something on the grounds. But when they um, try to get the organ fixed, it does, it takes abundant life to come in and kind of put some pressure to the boss of abundant life, who's again these these huge millionaire church you know people, to come in and, and to to restore the and they only to restore the organ and they only do that so they can tie this into, you know the their their own ceremony and so this idea one one of the things that that Ethan Hawke's character struggles with, I, at least to me in these films is that he is this person who seems to be caring more about God, about his faith, about his place in this universe, about 
what he owes to other humans than this church whose name is Abundant Life actually does. And he and you can see that in his relationship with the person who is a parishioner of Abundant Life, who cares about him. And he's had a dalliance with at some point they had a romantic, you know, a liaison. And so it's this woman that kind of comes up and checks on him. At one point they had a sexual relationship or at least a relations. And she comes to him. And is like, do you feel that that was wrong? And he's like, no, that was, that was but but he also despises her one because I do think he believes that is wrong I think he believes he's doing this as penance and as punishment for losing his son and I do believe that he sees the vileness in these mega churches and these people who pay lip service and who do not suffer who know biblical verses but only the ones that allow them to prosper he sits into with a group of, of young students and, and and this youth group and one of the youth group members basically says, you know, why should we have to suffer for our Christianity when that is a tenet of the Bible that you should suffer? But if you don't suffer, that that your reward is lessened, that it's not that in that you should absolutely suffer for this because it's it's difficult. It's painful. It's, it is not an easy thing that you should come by. And these guys and, and, the, and the kids response or one of the kids responses is like, fuck that. I'm tired of being, I'm tired of having to hide in the shadows. I'm tired of not being, you're telling me that Jesus doesn't want us to be rich. And Ethan Hawke is like desperately wanting to shout at this kid. Yes. Yes. That is what Jesus, (laughs) yes, he does not want you to be rich. You know, Ethan Hawke's character, Toller, he, he is practicing sort of, you know, asceticism in the way that one would if they actually cared about what having less allowed you to do more of where you know really right asceticism is just used by things like mega churches or like big capitalist institutions as a way of preaking us into 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 living austerity without less as they kind of get more this goes back to the idea of you know catholicism and sort of like the plenary indulgences of let me pay to commit more sins which is which is what the sort of mega church and those investors like this ed bulk guy that's what he's doing i'm going to pay for all this stuff right you'll look the other way on me polluting the neighborhood all around you, right? Because I'm going to help you build this giant church. I right. mean, but the contrast there between First Reformed, right, a 250-year-old kind of wooden shack of a church versus this mega church, which is a stadium, th- there's your contrast of capitalism and religion. I mean, there's that juxtaposition. There's that kind of tension, which I think is a big part of this film, too. And I, I think that, yeah, it's totally on the nose. But also, for Toller, who's struggling with this stuff, I think it has to be on the nose or in your face because he's so kind of at at his wits end with how do I deal with this? How do I kind of continue on in this world that doesn't care? How do I go on living in this place that doesn't care if I live? We see this all the time, like around us. Like I have no idea how to deal with any of these these things. I have no idea how to deal with my fucking feelings about <laughs> about climate change, about poverty, about homelessness. Because I'm like, what can I do? But it still keeps me up at night. Right. I, I think part of it too is Schrader answering that question that he asked in the previous movies about should we allow these people who we feel are they feel that they're betters to commit these crimes? I think the answer to that is unequivocally is no, of course not. But I think that has been, I think, Trader coming back to that. In Diary of the Country Priest, there's there's a great line or a great segment where the priest is talking to the young, not the countess, but the young girl who's having the dalliance with the count. And 
you know, she's a very bitter girl. I mean, she's been, you know, she's having relations with an older man and she's being kind of ignored by her caretaker. Her caretaker's leaving her and she's kind of, she, she's actually being sent away. So she's kind of... Um, and, the, and the Count's daughter, who's like her pupil, is like really sort of twisting the knife right. too. And she and she's, so she's conniving in a way with the priest and trying to get him to, to, to act on her behalf in a lot of different ways. And the priest is like, you know, you don't, you just hate yourself. Like if, you know, it, you know, and, and her response is like, it, basically his response to her is like, I, you know, it doesn't matter what I do, because at the end of the day, you will still hate yourself. And she's like, well, if I'm going to hate myself anyway, shouldn't I at least get what I want? Brilliant, brilliant yeah. line. Yeah. And that is, that should be written on <laughs> the, the door frame of every mega church everywhere. That is, that is the tenant which they live by is I don't care. I don't care. That's the pervading attitude, not just of mega churches. Oh, of but, course. And I, yeah, but I, I, everywhere. But, but no, right. But again, like, but that's the, that's the metaphor. That's the extended metaphor is that it's these people. And, and we're going to use that as kind of a central locator to talk about quote unquote, everyone. Because that's what we do now. We, you know, and this kind of goes back to, you know, films like Affliction, films like Michette, where every little thing that happens affects someone else in some way in these small towns, especially these small towns. We don't see that as often as we should. We don't see that kind of our actions have implications down the line for someone else that we may never meet. But who cares? I won't ever meet them. So fuck it. Right. It doesn't matter. Generations from right? now, who gives a shit? It matters. So, and like, like that's Toller's whole thing. Is he's like, why does no one else sort of see this, right? Because it's all just sort of profits over people. And that's it. The the scene where he's pouring out his whiskey and pouring the, <laughs> pouring the, the glass of Drano, it, it's so tense and so like harrowing. Yeah. And like, it's yeah. just the, the time just slows during that scene. And, you know, when he turns and sees Amanda and love and new life and an ability to be beyond himself in a way. Basically he sees what he's been preaching, what he was pre preaching to Michael in the first place is that, and, and, and that scene with him and him having the, you know, the back and forth about what God would say about all of this and what we owe to one another and, and, and how to get beyond this and that life is important and precious him basically coming to the belief that that is true and or at least in the moment thinking that is true and, and deciding to embrace it, literally embrace it and, and, and to move on. Even, even if the relationship is ill-advised at this point, it's, it's a real, and the, and having him end it, you know, mid twirl around, around then the really one of the only times of camera movement is when we're spinning around them and having it end mid you know, uh, you know, where you kind of just leave it open in the air. Yeah, I, I, this to me is out of all of Schrader's films, I think his masterpiece. I think I, I do too. I, I think this is having come this far in his career. I, and again, I love Schrader's films. I love his his screenwriting work. I think this is the best thing that he's done, hands down. And not to say that anything that he's done is bad, but I think this is the best thing he's done hands down. Oh no, I 100% agree. I mean, I think everything, everything, right? From the from this, and even Ethan Hawke said that the Toller was like the best written character he's ever played. But I think overall, I think this is, yeah, no, this is this is it's a fantastic film. I think it's Schrader's best. I think that for me, this is an ending that really lands well, and it's an ending that 
fully has that note of grace or that kind of redemptive mm-hmm. moment that the other ones don't fully have. So even if we look at the endings of like uh, American Gigolo or Light Sleeper and the card counter, which we'll talk about later, there's nothing, there's no separation. There's nothing between the characters, nothing to stop that kind of consecration of the, of the kind of redemption, right? So there's this physical consecration of redemption at the end. Everything else, there's always something separate. There's always something between those two final characters, right? right? Um, and this one just really kind of does that. And yet we have this like twirling camera moment, which I think is fine, but it didn't, and what I mean is like, it, it, it didn't really get in the way. But there's one scene that, where he's sitting on the couch with Amanda Seyfried and in the left-hand corner of the scene, there is this lamp that looks like, I, I don't know if it was purposeful or not. It looks like an eyeball. It, it just kind of looks like a single eyeball, like staring back at the viewer. It was so like disconcerting when I was watching it. And I was just like, I don't know what this is. I just, my, in my notes, I just have eyeball lamp. Eyeball. <laughs> eyeball. And not to, not, and not to diminish the ending, but I did think in my head as this minute, as they started hugging, I was like, oh shit, I'm glad she's layered because that barbed wire is going to poke I know. her so well, badly. I was trying to figure out if he had taken, taken it, it off, off or not right. because I mean, he just put his like, um, his black, his, his like on all. Yeah. His, um, I should know the, the name for that. <laughs> I was an altar boy. <laughs> I was a good cat. I have lots of Catholic guilt. Um, but I've, I, like it would, you would have seen it poking out. So I don't, but I don't know. Um, you know, one of the things about, about this film too is, is I like the kind of moral implications that the film has. And this kind of asking a question, at least asking a question of us of like, who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? Who are we to value our faith over someone else's? Who are we to, as Toller talks about, sort of like um, degrade, you know, God's gift in this world? Who are we to certain values over over people or, or commodities and goods over people or the idea of like profits over people? Yeah, who are we to tell women what to do with their bodies. I mean, like Toller says to Michael, right? Michael's like, I don't want to have this kid. And he's like, who are you to tell your wife what to do? And it's not even like a, you know, God in in life. It's just like, it's not your decision. But uh, so, so much of that is kind of being thrown back at us. Yeah. And I think, I think too, again, it goes back to that indictment of, of, of Schrader's youth and this idea, especially of, of Calvinism. And I don't know how big Calvinism is these days, to be quite honest, but the idea of that we're predestined and that there's no real reason to concern ourselves with earthly things, that it, that, that these problems are someone else's problems. Like where you see George C. Scott in hardcore, he's ignored the outside world forever. He's, he has no concern, no concern whatsoever about it. Even when he's going in and he's, he's mired in it, he has no concern for these people that he's stomping on and beating to get to the end goal of finding his yeah. daughter. It's this indictment of of this lack of humanity wrapped in the auspice of faith that allows you to then ignore everything else because of some misguided or you know misinterpreted belief that you may have in, in order for your own prosperity and in the sense that you can you can forget everything else because you're predestined because you put on this code of Christianity or you put on this code of religion that gives you some false sense of salvation and righteousness that you can ignore everything else around you. Good movie. 
really, really good movie. If I told you that I introduced myself as a recovering Catholic, <laughs> I think I think you introduced. Yeah, I think, I think I've seen that before. Just uh, hi, I'm I'm a recovering Catholic. I, I I'm sorry, none of this was my idea. Hi, Brock. Right? Hi. <laughs> well, yeah. So so this is going going back real fast to to affliction. I mean, I I don't know about you, but but so much of how I engage with films and engage with art is is on a phenomenological kind of experiential way where this stuff is it's a piece of phenomena and it's a piece of phenomena for me to interact with based on my experiences in the real world based on my knowledge that i'm bringing bringing to this piece of art and so i have a real soft spot for films that deal with alcoholism and that deal with um, generational alcoholism i mean my father wasn't abusive but he was a drunk and so i know what that i know what that's like i know and and i know what it's like to try and get out of that shadow and try and be like i'm not going to be like that and then you realize one day well, I'm kind of like that, so I need to really make some changes here. But yeah, first and foremost, is a really good movie. To your to your point, though, I, I and I, you know, like you said, you bring to what you you bring, you know, your own baggage to this. Not to not to denigrate what you just said, but yeah. I mean, but you no, it's, you bring it's, your own experiences to this, and like these these ideas, I I find these people, I find people who are steeped in biblical knowledge and use it sometimes as a weapon, very intriguing and interesting. Yeah, I grew up in the Church of Christ, where it was very black and white, and it was very this is right and this is wrong. And even as a young kid questioning and like, and, and uh, trying to figure out and, and to work your way through the logistics of a omnipotent God who's broken into three pieces and, and born of a virgin birth and right. that you don't ever have any proof, but you're just supposed to, all these things as, as you know, as a kid, obviously I, I've had a hard time with all of that and at different places in my life, I've made peace and mm-hmm. decided that I, you know, understood. And then other times I decided that I didn't, you know, necessarily need that anymore. It, but anyway, the, these types of struggles to me really, I, I think, I think they're important. I think that that showing this, and again, I think this, that, that the throughput of like a lot of these films is that, that a lot of this learned, you know, sense of maturity where you see older people or people in bigger positions of power then dismiss. You see it through, especially with Diary of a Country Priest, where the priest is very young. Now, and again, Ethan Hawke's character in this case, Toller, is is a young priest in this environment, but they're just basically ignored. They're like they're mm-hmm. they're seen as annoyances and, and they're never because again, this is something that someone else has had to put aside at some point. That they've all have gone through this type of crisis of faith. And they've all come out the other side of it, but basically how they come out the other side of it is just by ignoring it, never answering those questions, but just by putting a pen in and a pen in it and saying, I'm never going to answer that question. And I'm just going to take the good shit and leave all the bad shit behind. And <laughs> yeah. the faster that you decide to do that, the better off you'll be. And you'll become less of an annoyance to me. Let's go abundant life and let's talk about how. Let's, Jesus let's, wants you to be rich. Jesus wants you to be rich, yeah. and we're all going to be prosperous. And that, <laughs> and that, you know, uh, you, okay. The, you're, the only thing, yeah, you have to feel bad about yourself a little bit, but also, your real, your real, you know, your real enemy is going to be Muslims and Jews right. and gays and and people of the world who want to, you know, pervert you. And it will never end. It's there's always someone, you know. There's the, the secular world is, out, which is another one of these things that kind of throws, you know. I think Schrader's pulling us back into is that this. I don't. I forget what year Diary of a Country Priest came out, but this is a thing. Fifty one. That, that doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't end. It will never, never end. end until childhood's end happens and the aliens come down and they decide that, that <laughs> they show us yes. that religion is all bullshit. It will so, never end. So what? One last thing on religion. 
Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. I mean, I grew up Catholic and I went to Catholic grade school and Catholic high school and I was an altar boy. And at a certain point, probably between the ages of eight and 11, I thought like being a priest was a good idea. Like I'll go to, se- and, I, and I knew what, I knew what it entailed, right? I knew, right, sure. all, but I was like, I'll go to seminary. I have learned, I learned more from going to Catholic school about how to be in the world than I have from anything. And it was never, maybe it was just the school and church that I was at, but I was surrounded by priests and sisters and it was never, it was never, you should do this or this or this because God says so. It was, you should do this and you should treat people well because you don't want to be an asshole. And we're kind of all in this together. It'll just be easier for everybody. That's nice. (laughs) That's really nice. So, So what I took away from the church of Christ and if we have listeners out there, that are still in the church of Christ, you know, good on you, but sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I learned that, uh, we should be good because otherwise you're going to burn in hell (laughs) and you should fear God. And that fear is love. (laughs) And that (laughs) fucked me up for a really long time. Fear is love, right? Fear is love. (laughs) Hallelujah. All right, let's let's talk about the card counter. There is a weight a man can accrue. This is where all the good stuff happens. The weight created by his past actions. It is a weight which can never be removed. All in. And in the interest of time, I'll give you a quick synopsis. So William Bill Tell is a gambler and a former serviceman who was at Abu Ghraib and was eventually convicted of sort of torture um, and spent some time in jail. So while in while in prison, I'm sorry, he learns how to count cards. Once he's out, he lives a transient existence on the casino trail, playing small, winning small, not calling too much attention to himself. I mean, Atlantic City, uh, during this like law enforcement convention, he's approached by Kirk with a C, angry, wounded, vulnerable young man who asks him for help in taking revenge on a common enemy that the two have. And it's this military contractor who was Tell's superior and Kirk's father's superior at Abu Ghraib. And trained them in ways of and torture. And trained them in ways of, of, of torture. And men like tell and men like Kirk's father were punished and, and, and imprisoned where men like Gordo, John Gordo, they weren't, they were never because uh, he was an American prosecuted citizen in a foreign he was a land. private citizen in a foreign land. And, and now these guys are out making money as they were, experts, as they were then, as they were before, but they're just still doing it openly and, and no they're just cares. not hiding anything. So through this tells he's a chance at redemption for himself and a way to help Kirk with a C kind of move on. And that's the movie. And that's the movie. Some of the things in common here. I mean, this is, this is not too different than anything that we've watched before. Right. I think this is a lesser version of first reformed. And I don't want to, I don't want to tell you, you know, again, to jump ahead to how we feel about this movie, but it essentially is, I mean, he writes a diary. He lives a very regimented, almost priest like ascetic. Oh no, it it very much is. I mean, he's, he's pretty much, he's pretty much, he's 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 an ascetic. I mean, he really is an ascetic in this, in this sense that he owns very little and he moves around. So this idea of he uses things, but he doesn't own a lot. Right. So he stays in motels. We never see his home. Right. Even I mean, if he has, even one. if he has one, we never see it. His car is, is not fancy. It's very utilitarian. And, and so he has a, here's the thing though. Did you catch his watch? 
I did not. His watch is a Piaget. Is this right? huh? equity? Or is that a different movie that I saw that I in? It's a different. Okay. So his his watch <laughs> I, I get, is a. <laughs> I got I just to step back. I got fucking lost in all these movies. Like I seriously, I started losing them. I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah. The, the 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 desire to pray is actually prayer. I was like, where the fuck had I heard that before? <laughs> like, okay, That's, I got to step back. Yeah, I got to like watch. Right. I need a Three Stooges marathon because I can't. My head is spinning in all of this misery. I, I got to step the fuck back it's, for a second. It's, his watch sorry, is a. And that's okay. His watch is a Piaget Polo S. It retails for about thirteen grand. Uh-huh. So I mean that that's a weird thing. I mean, look, I really like watches. I'm I'm into watches, and so I saw that. I was like, anyway, that's the one thing that isn't kind of like monastic and and, and ascetic in this film. I mean, he dresses well, but he doesn't dress flashy. Yeah, the, his whole his whole piece is to not. Be, I mean, he spent eight years in a federal prison. He also is trying to dodge casino bosses and not and to stay off of their radar. So his whole intent is to keep a clean cut haircut. You know, whole, everything is close to the vest. He's quiet and so, doesn't talk a lot. And he understands that when he's won, you know, when he wins enough, he gets up and leaves the table. Right. He's not greedy. He's very. I mean, he he lives a militaristic or a prison lifestyle. I would say, yeah, it's a it's a prison regimen, right? It's very. He lives in a cell. It's he the follows same thing, a routine. Day in, day out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, you know that. The change comes when he meets Tiffany Haddish's character, La Linda, who runs a stable. She finds backers. She finds financial backers for for card players that that, that she thinks you know can, can make win. people some money, right? right? Can win, and so he uses this as an opportunity to help out Kirk with this. He wants to, Kirk wants to go kill Gordo, and 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 he asks um, Bill for help, and so Oscar Isaac is like, well, let me get you some money, and so you won't do this. You can get your life back on track. And it's so, very kind of a hard eight scenario in Paul Thomas Anderson's heart. Very eight. much. Yeah. Where he takes him under his wing. He he doesn't necessarily show him gambling. In fact, gambling is a throughput in this movie, but is ignored almost at every single turn. So if you're watching yeah. this to wanting to see some sort of great World Series of Poker hands, this is not the movie for you. No. But I mean, but I think it does. I think it does accurately portray that that world. Sure. Um, you've been in casinos. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know I like these, poker. I mean, you know I, yeah, these I mean, guys. Yeah. I've watched I, them, you know, I, I, don't, yes. I don't play anymore. I, <laughs> there's a lot of things I don't do anymore for like good reason. Right? Um, um, but yeah, you see these guys, you know, like, I mean, it's like the whole rounders thing and you sit down at a table and you can pick these guys out, you know, like when you should get up and leave from one of these tables. So I think it's a pretty accurate portrayal of, of a life like this, of guys that go from casino to casino, to casino making enough to kind of Live. Yes, they're living and they're living fine. I mean, he's got a suitcase. But there's no future for him, really. No, there's, no. This, this, this is it. This That's is, it. That's all he's going to do. Right. He's going to do this forever. Yeah. But he's fine doing that. Again, it's a routine, and it's a thing that he can set his expensive watch by. He's fine with doing that, but he also he doesn't just come upon upon Kirk. He wanders into the That's seminar, true. and Kirk recognizes him, mm-hmm. um, probably from his dad's photos or or you know you know something. He recognizes him, so he's still drawn back to seeing this past life and seeing how it's flourishing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, yeah, he didn't just like sort of happen to wander into that seminar either. He, this is a man who's seeking penance for his actions. Yes. He, he definitely got 
punished, but he's still living out. His life is some sort of, it's, it's like another flagellation. He's not living beyond his means. He's not letting himself live lavishly, even though he could definitely live lavishly. He stays in inns. He takes, he stays in, in rundown, not necessarily rundown, but cheap hotels. Super runs, seven motels. Right. And, uh, you know, he's, he's not taking, he doesn't get comped by the casinos. He's not taking into buffets. He's not having sex with anybody. He just goes and he's known he ha- but he doesn't have any friends. He just has people that he somewhat tolerates and his acquaintances, you know, inter- entertains, but outside of more than just trying to keep them at, at bay more than anything else. Yeah. He, he even says, I mean, he tries to get rid of the one guy, Slippery Bill. <laughs> I right. love that name. He, so, he, he knows people, but he doesn't really. So one wonders if his redemption arc would have been different had Kirk not been in the room. Would he have gone to, and ultimately what happens in the end of this movie is that he gives Kirk money to essentially pay off his debts, to pay off his mother's debts, and then reconnect with his mother. Because once his father had committed suicide, Kirk, all of their lives had kind of fallen apart. And so he gives Kirk 165, something along those lines, money to 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 write his life. And the only caveat is that he goes back and spends time with his mother. He does do that initially, and then but then he ends up going to Willem Dafoe's house to confront him. During that confrontation, Willem Dafoe is a security expert, so he sets off a security alarms and he kills Kirk. He shoots Kirk, and Kirk is dead. William Tell goes, Oscar Isaac goes to, to he's in the middle of a World Series tournament, a feeder tournament that would get him to Vegas to go into the World Series of Poker. And this is all, again, to the end of helping Kirk. He gets up from the table, leaves, and Yeah, from goes, the final table, the, the final, last match. Right, yeah. so if he wins this, he goes to the World Series of Poker. He gets up, leaves, and goes to Willem Dafoe's house and basically tells him, the man you killed was the son of another man who killed himself because of what we did together. And I'm not going to kill you outright, but we're going to go into another room and we're going to trade blows and we'll see who we're going to do that until one of us dies. And that's, and so you don't see that obviously Uh, you just hear it. Once it's all said and done, William tell, obviously he ends up killing Willem Dafoe comes out. He's injured himself. He calls the cops, says there's a homicide and he ends up going back into jail. The through line in the, in the upswing, the, the bright note is that during that time frame, he has fallen in love with, he's allowed himself to fall in love with Lalonda and she comes to visit him in, in prison. And that's, Basically, finger touches. And, the and we glass. get our Bresson ending. And we get our Bresson ending. <laughs> our very, very Bresson I mean, it's the scene with Defoe is is great when he walks into the house and Tell is sitting there and he says, sit down. And he explains what happened. Willem Defoe, very matter-of-factly, very kind of not indignant, really, just says, and I'm responsible for that. Yeah. And, and Tell's like, well, yeah, Defoe's a, every man's responsible for his own actions. And there is this like sense of we make our choices, we live with these choices, and that's what, but again, like, you know, this illusion or this kind of like de- de- denial of, of truth. And Well, and Defoe's character in this case is almost an antithesis to someone like people at Abundant Life in this case, because Defoe makes no qualms. He make, he does not question who, he knows who he is. Mm-hmm. He makes no apologies for what he's done. He doesn't feel bad. He does. He did this for money and he did it because he did it well. And the fact that there were consequences, if, if one believes that if Defoe had have been stupid enough to been in the, and again, that's to say that this was, these were awful, awful travesties that happened here, but had he had been in the pictures that he would have been prosecuted as well. But, and, and so to that extent, 
Um, Defoe probably would have taken his licks. Hiptari would have gone to prison and accepted his punishment. But since he wasn't, he wasn't going to offer himself up at any altar to be sacrificed. And so to this end, he certainly wasn't going to do that with William Tell either. And he accepted the fact that they were going to go toe-to-toe. Because again, it wouldn't have mattered. This is where they were at this particular point in time. This is who he trained this man to be. And so one of the, the better man is going to come out on top of this. And if, and if Defoe had have killed William Tell, which I would think would have been a good ending to this movie. Yeah. Um, but then that, we wouldn't have had a Brisson ending. Right. We would not have had a Brisson ending. But I think that would have been a good ending to this movie where you just, one, you could have not known who came out on top and then just known, right? Um, Defoe would have kept on doing what he was doing. And to that end, I think he's you know extremely honest character and an honest telling in a Schrader film where most of the characters except for your main antagonist is kind of painted with a broad stroke of right. bad you know good versus bad right. and where most times it's just everyone's bad <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I like this through I like this throughput of of men who find them and again this is so on the nose about Oscar Isaacs ends up exa- in the exact same place where we find him in the beginning and, right. and, and to the point where he you, you almost believe that that's where he wanted to be all along. Had they have not had let him out of prison, he would have stayed there. He would have been there for good. I, he would have just he would have just taken his penance and his punishment because the lifestyle fit him. But this idea of that these there's there's the character growth is again it's Sisyphus. You just push that boulder up the hill. You're gonna find yourself at the end of it. You can find yourself at the bottom of the hill at the, at the, you know, at the end of the story, no matter what you do. These two movies, along with I think Gigolo, really embody that Schrader idea of a man in his room that he got from Pickpocket. Because I think those characters, Julian Kay, William Tell, and Ernst Toller, are stuck in the sort of room of their own making, right, in their heads. And, and, and so it doesn't be a physical place, right, but it very is this kind of like cloistered existence that they all have. And they're lonely men living in a world that they're detached from, in, in, in a world that really doesn't, I mean, I said this before, but in a world that doesn't really care about them. So my problem with this movie is that and I don't necessarily know if it's a if it's a choice of the actor or if it was a choice of the direction or the character I don't feel like Isaac is really truly suffering he comes sure. across as so stoic and so mechanical that it never seems like everything is so mad everyone deals with everything in, in this movie is a matter of fact that this is what was going to happen regardless of what we did and I, I feel like that to, to kind of lessens his impact in this case. And it may just be a matter of Isaac being really good, but it, but also and also putting on that that the, the lack of Brisson affectation to the point where you're just emotionless in this. But right. you see the pain in Wade's eyes. You see the pain in Hawk's eyes. Isaac doesn't convey that. So that is, is, is one of the things that kind of took me out of this. The other thing was... You know, as much as I kind of felt first reformed, and I love first reformed, that the environmental justice was a little on the nose. In this case, having a brown man in a draped in a U.S. flag and shouting USA yes, out of every hand that he won was so on the nose. And so like this ugly American, and then that being the thorn in Isaac's side, I was just like, okay, I get it. But it's over the top, and I not to I, I I never bought Haddish in this role at all. She does not work for me. I like Haddish as a comedic actress. I think she's sure. funny, but sure. I don't. But in this case, I could I don't think she has the chops yet to pull off this role. Yeah, I. So I was going back on back and forth on 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 Haddish's performance. I think Spacek and Seyfried are really good. 
I think they're both really good. Michelle Williams originally was was approached to do the American Safety. Yeah, first that part, part which I good. think that would have been fantastic too. But the other thing is, I don't think that those two characters are really given anything to do. They are not. They are not in any way sort of fully formed. I mean, look, Sissy Spacek. I think, Spacek, I think, I think Spacek brings more to the role. Exactly. I, I think she probably brings more to the role than what was actually on the page. I don't think there was anything on the page except that, like, oh, you're a suffering girlfriend. And that's that's kind of how Seyfried is, but that, is but written. But her at the kitchen table with the gas oh, and the tears, it's so good. No. Oh, no, no. Right, yeah. And no, I'm not, yeah she's I, fantastic. Just, yeah. yeah, but I think I don't think Schrader gave those two enough to do. I don't think those characters were, were fleshed out at all. For as much weight as they brought to the story, you, yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, and so part of me is kind of like, well, but that's was also, Haddish given anything to do either? That's also a pickpocket thing, though. I I know. I know. Definitely. But at the same time, that, that film is so intentional in its... Because if you look at her face, I mean, her name's Jean. I, I don't know the actress's name, but her face the entire time is blank. Her name is also Tiffany Haddish. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. So, so Tiffany Haddish took that name as a stage name in sort of tribute to the <laughs> right. actress. That's how, that's, I totally that's understand. That's how and her got connected. I totally understand. But, but there's such an intentional, like, blandness and blankness to that character because you see it in all the characters. Right. And so, right. And, but I just, I just, I agree with you that, that I don't think Tiffany Haddish was a great choice for that role. I, I think someone else would have brought more to it, but I also. Or less. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's kind of like. Yeah, she's she, neither here nor yeah, there. She's in a weird. She? She's in a yeah, weird middle like ground, like liminal place. And, and the sex scene is odd. Just it's in a just weird. Odd. It's, a, it's a weird reprieve for a character that shouldn't yeah. have one. Yeah, but because the, again, because you go back to first reformed, and that scene is so bizarre and so ethereal that that it's not a sex. Yes, there is sexuality to it, but you're but immediately as her hair and it's a, God, it's a beautiful scene. Oh, as so her good. hair falls over his face, then he start he's he's transported to seeing this all these horrific I'm, crimes against you know in the environment that you don't you don't have the opportunity to see it as a love scene again. And even in American gigolo, like the sex scene in card counter is more passionate than the one in America, even in American gigolo, which is more, you know, by definition or at least by, by, um, a reputation, a more sexy movie. And again, this, the, I mean, the, the sex scene in Gigolo is all, you don't, you right, know, it's just all, it's all, it's, it's all shots bits and, and pieces. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's no pieces. I mean, like most sex <laughs> is bits and pieces, I mean, most, but it's, it's, it's again, it's all synecdoche. It's all, it's all metonymy. It's, it's, you see a hand, you see right. a leg and you see that. I mean, this is much closer to the scene in first reformed, but, but uh, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's as sexy as the scene in first reformed. And I just, again, he's only there because he told, Kirk with the C that he would go do that if he went off and you know like you know, right. resumed his actual life and sort right. of got things back on track. But but anyway, back, yeah, back to it's the, almost a, it's almost a, 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 a yeah. A, a I'm message, doing this because I have to. A message not, to him to like to, to to encourage Kirk. Maybe then maybe that's we're reading. That's what we should pull out of it is that. But again, Kirk's not <laughs> Kirk's not in the room with them. But the <laughs> idea that Kirk should also lead a normal life is that you know do as I do type of uh, right. scenario. Right. I agree that Haddish doesn't bring a lot to it. But I just think there's a lot there. I, anyway. I, I, yeah. And yeah. I, yeah. And, and to, to just to the ultimate end, I did not like the card counter as much no. as these other two films. No. And I do think it is a lesser version of first reformed. I don't think it's a bad movie by any means, but I do think that it's, that it's probably one of the <laughs> middling, you know, middle round, middle yeah. low films, however you want to say and, it. And, and his newer film, the master gardener is probably going to be similar 
So it, 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 it's, it's falling into this pattern, right, of right. of these lonely men writing in their journals, doing weird jobs. We'll see how that goes. So record, we got a little bit of time left. Record yes. If you like. Uh, go back to Affliction. What's your... Uh, <laughs> the Wolf of Snow Hollow. Okay, I've not seen that. Oh, it's it's. Uh, you like Jim Cummings films? Yeah, yeah. Okay, then you yeah. like this. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a Jim Cummings film, right? I mean, directed it, started it, wrote it. He is a, he plays John Marshall. He's a sheriff in a small mountain town. Terrors mounting. Bodies are being discovered after each full moon. He keeps saying, "There's no such thing as werewolves." <laughs> Robert Forster plays his dad. Oh, I love He's a sheriff. So, but he's divorced. He has a tough relationship with his daughter. Um, he's just trying to keep it all together, and he's not very good at it. It's fun. It's all a fun right. one. Off, check it out. Mine is a simple plan, directed oh, by Sam yeah, Raimi, yeah. starring Bill Paxton, Bridget Fonda, and Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, similar, you know, snowy aesthetic. It's basically kind of around the same time frame as Affliction coming out. This is more of a kind of a potboiler who done it. Uh, Bill Paxton is kind of like Wade, in, in a, in a, but he has a little bit more authority in a small town. Uh, he runs a grain shop, or at least he works at a grain shop and thinks he'll take it over someday. But basically, he's just a workaday guy. His brother is kind of the town drunk and kind of the town buffoon. He runs around also with another town drunk. One day they're out. They see a plane crash. They come across it with another one of their buddies, and it has $4 million in it. They decide to take the money back home, and everything then starts to fall apart. And one of the... It, it, you can think what you want to think about Billy Bob Thornton, but I think he, I, 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 one of the, I think once he's said and gone, I think we will see him as our, one of our generation's greatest actors. He is so, so good in a simple plan. There's, there's, there's just a scene where he's lying on a bed and he's just like talking about how, you know, do you ever think that you're bad? And it's just him kind of, you come to the realization that Billy Bob Thornton throughout the movie is not as dumb as people you know, give, make, make him out to be. And that is certainly that his, that his brother, Bill Paxton has kind of thought him to be. And it is really just a great kind of very un Sam Raimi esque film. Uh, the, probably the least Sam Raimi film of all the Sam Raimi films. And it's just, it's <laughs> so like, they, they even told him like, you can make this, but you can't move the camera around. Like you're and it, he took it on basically to see if he could make a film like this. And it's just, a, it's just a great nineties, um, you know, just movie where, and Bridget Fonda plays this kind of shrewish wife who kind of just turns the nails it turns the screws at every at every turn with bill paxton bill paxton plays a great everyman highly recommend it's simple play. yeah it's good it's good and i think billy bob thornton's brilliant i i think you're right i think mean, once once we move past kind of our, our the blood vial we want to turn we want to we, we turn him into a caricature and, right and he kind of refuses to let that happen but <laughs> right um yeah i think he'll get more and more respect he doesn't get enough as it, it is but yeah that that we are you know we're 30 years removed or coming on 30 years removed from things like sling blade and all these movies that were kind of mid 90s like brilliant indie films i wonder when we'll start coming back around to those and realizing you know, kind of having a, a, um, a renaissance of those movies and kind of cherishing them again, because, a, you know, a Sling Blade was and like things like a Sling Blade, The Apostle, all these like movies oh, yeah. that were like, yeah. just just so, so well done, so well written, pulled out actors like John Ritter that you didn't think had this in them. It's just, I mean, and Dwight Yoakam. Yeah. And Dwight Yoakam. I mean, that whole like, <laughs> uh, yeah, Vic Chestnut's in that movie. I love Vic Chestnut. Oh, Vic um, Chestnut's. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. And I'm, I'm glad to know you have musical taste. Um, <laughs> Can I tell no, a story about Vic yeah, Chestnut? So yeah. I, I, uh, what, I can't remember what birthday 
it was, but I was at a little, we went, I went and saw Vic Chestnut at a little bar for my birthday, brought all these people. And of course, you know, I mean, Vic Chestnut is a, is a man, it, like he was a big, like REM counted him as an influence, like they kind of championed him. And he's just this little kind of indie folk singer. He's in, he was uh, in a wheelchair and, um, I don't know. It was just great. It was just great yeah. to see him perform. And then we that night, that same night, we went and saw Cube at the Inwood. That was just a fun day. Not a good story. But, but, but <laughs> no, it was it was a, it was a great it was a great story. Um, <laughs> Fuck you. What's, okay, the, uh, okay. what's your first so, performed? No, this about? is this is I'm this is a total cheat, and it's the Seventh Seal. Okay. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, mine's not good on this one either. So again, but it's like who hasn't seen this film, and who who doesn't put these two together when it's you know, a, a, a Max Van Sydow plays a knight who's returned home from the Crusades, and he starts looking for answers about life and death and existence and the existence of God all the while right the black plague is in its pomp and he's playing chess with the grim reaper i just i mean look i fucking love this movie yeah and, of course and and it's it's funny i i went and saw it several years ago at uh the magnolia in dallas and for like one of their right you know yeah. and it was like me and like Repertory. three other people right but i'm watching that and i didn't realize how funny it was i mean i don't know how many times i've seen it but i'm like this is in a weird way funny yeah, yeah i found myself laughing at band of outsiders um, yeah. a, a lot and like no one else i'm like all right whatever like, it's funny okay, movie. i don't right. give a shit what you guys think right you're just you're missing and the my point. wife is sitting next because i have a very loud boisterous laugh when i'm in the theater i don't give a shit i just i mean i like to laugh and yeah. i'm not like cape I'm not, fear yeah, i'm not Bob i'm not De Niro De Niro and cape, cape fear, fear but yeah. <laughs> sure you're not so mine is bergman's winter light okay yeah and, and which again this obviously it it, it takes direct reference to to the I mean, first reform takes direct reference from to, to for the winter light this is about a priest who as at a failing parish and um you know he basically just has conversations about god with you know three different people one of them is max van Sydow, um who plays the michael character from first reform he is concerned about china's nuclear you know um, nuclear weapons cache he has a pregnant wife and he's just like you know what are, he's overwhelmed with despair and ultimately he kills himself uh, also, the, the priest is involved with a young parishioner who wants to help him out after his wife has died, but he wants nothing to do with her because he basically sees her as a failing after his wife. He, he loves his wife and not her. And then he talks to a, a, a man who's been maimed by a railroad and, and has greater understanding of God and Christ's sacrifice than and what actually happened to Christ than, than the man, than, than the priest does. And the, and the priest is just dealing with his loss of faith, his loss of God. It is a beautiful, quiet film, you know, filmed in the Academy ratio, just a lot of like, just at a certain point, you're, you're, you're faced with about 10 minutes of just straight dialogue being read to you, you know, you know, with a, with a woman looking at you directly into the camera, it's, it is a beautiful, quiet film that I uh, don't think people talk about much when they talk about Bergman, but really, really good. Well, he only made a couple films. So right. It's... And, you know, and of course, according to Pauline, <laughs> Pauline Kale, he was, it's quaint. He's, he's quaint. He's, he's, yeah. he's quaint. I, I, yeah. I love Bergman. I, there's I, just, the... I prefer Antonioni. Sure, I mean, I, sure. but, but, but I mean, but that's not, yeah, but, that's but like, again, like I hate, yeah, it's like the Godard Truffaut thing. I, right. I, I hate the binary opposition, but yeah, no, I, the, 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 the final scene of the woman, you know, just the close up mm. the side of her face and just how beautifully she's captured and how beautifully she's lit. And they filmed this in a church on a snowy day because they wanted the light to come through and how it would change throughout the day. You don't, for people, you talk to people that are cinephiles and the people that really, truly love film. And these are the things that like just jazz us up and like that, that type of thing. Whereas, 
I, I get it. I, I I don't begrudge anyone who likes any type of movie, but you know, you're not going to get that in a in a Marvel flick. No, because there's something so moving and so fucking beautiful that touches you in a way that you don't even know why you're being touched, right? I mean, you don't even know it. It happens to you. It, it, well, yeah. this is why art matters. I mean, this. Right. I mean, look. I mean, this is why art matters. This is why movies matter. This is why music. I mean, it's why Big Chestnut mattered. It's why it's why going to museums fucking matter, right? This is why you look at paintings, right? This is why you look at a Rothko and you're like, why am I why am I crying? What is going on? Right. I don't know, but I can't stop. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, be sure to turn into the next episode of Brock gets sad sometimes. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> All right, your final right. recommended if you like. All right, uh, paired with the card counter, I picked The Good Thief, okay. the Neil Jordan film yeah. uh, with Nick Nolte, which is a remake of Bob Le Flambeur. I was going to go with, with the John Pierre Melville movie, but um, I went with this one. And Nolte is Bob, an aging gambler, thief, uh, for one last score, right? They're going to rob a casino in Monte Carlo. I love like one last job movies, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. But um, I saw this in the theater in Indianapolis when it came out, and uh, there was a storm outside, and it knocked out the power for about a half an hour, and then they had to like restart the movie. So <laughs> nice. I just I just have kind of like that eidetic sort right. of memory with the film too. So he Nolte did a couple of films with at least one with the Polish brothers, at least one of the Polish brothers. <gasps> oh, that's um, uh, it, it wasn't, wasn't Twin Falls, Idaho. It was, it was North uh, Fork, right? North Fork, yeah, 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 yeah. Love North. We need to talk yeah. about. I, 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 Polish may come up much, much later if, in the Wilhelm uh, repertoire, but <laughs> but they're they're an interesting cr- crew. Yeah. Uh, my recommended, if you like, is Croupier by Mark, Mike Hodges, uh, starring Clive Owen. Yeah. Basically brought Clive Owen on the screen, uh, onto the scene. This is similar in the sense that it's, you know, it's obviously set in casinos. Uh, Clive Owen is a novelist who is struggling to find interesting things to write about. Uh, he gets a call from his dad who sets him up as a croupier in a, or basically a, um, what do you? Well, I don't even know. He's a dealer. Yeah, he's a dealer. He's a yeah. He play, he's a dealer in a in a in a British casino, yeah. um, and he's using a that car dealer, kind of, not like a drug dealer, <laughs> right? And he's using that to kind of get him ideas because right now he's like a writer for hire and he's writing this soccer sex comedy book that he doesn't want to write. Uh, he becomes embroiled in a scheme to rob the casino and um, things go, and then his, you know, his, it, it obviously starts to infiltrate areas of his life. It's, it's just a very kind of, again, another one of those like pot boiler thrillers that it's all one man driven. Clive Owen comes out of nowhere. The voiceover is not, you know, intrusive. It's, it's, it actually really enhances this film. Uh, Hodges, if you don't know, he directed Get Out, uh, not Get Out, what am I just say? Get Carter. <laughs> <laughs> he did not direct Get Out. And he also directed Max Found Sit Out in Flash Gordon. So, um, but, and then a great little Michael Caine, additional Michael Caine film called Pulp of the, right after Get Carter, which was a lot of fun. So that's my, yeah, croupier. Wait, was this post or pre? Uh, Guy Ritchie BMW commercials for Clive Owen. Uh, this would have been post or pre, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. 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 no, like he didn't. Because then he became the driver in the Guy Ritchie. <laughs> right, and I don't. This would have been. I don't even remember when this is out. But Guy Ritchie had a would have been a thing by this time. But yeah, yeah. no, Clive was not yet. So so yeah, that was why does Wilhelm scream? Um, <laughs> and that was uh, part two of our part Paul two Schrader. of our Schrader series. And next time uh, we will. Um, next time we're going to be actually talking about Blood Simple. Um, again, uh, the Fort Worth Film Club will be showing Blood Simple at Stage West on November. 30th, so after Thanksgiving, come on out. Watch it with us. We'll have a discussion afterwards. We're going to talk that. We'll probably talk a couple other uh, Coen Brothers films. Blood in the Simple meantime. and its influences. And um, and we'll hit back. We'll come back to Schrader again. We're going to talk about his screenwriting efforts, that we, things that he didn't direct. Uh, we're also going to do a Christmas episode and a few other things. So stay tuned. And um, 
I don't know, stay frosty. Absolutely. Uh, okay. and, and, you know, and if you want, you know, send Brock a note. Cheer him up. He's sad sometimes. <laughs> I'm sad all the time. And I love you all. All right. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Why Does the Wilhelm Scream with your hosts, Brock and Jason. If you like today's episode, do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe in whatever application you use to consume podcasts these days. You can reach us by visiting whydoesthewilhelmscream.com. If you are in the DFW area, we would love to see you at a Fort Worth Film Club event. You can learn more about those and find a full schedule at fortworthfilmclub.com. And you can learn about my foundation and how we are trying to foster the next generation of film lovers at realhousefoundation.org. That's R-E-E-L housefoundation.org. Till next time.